Hello and welcome back to Bombato, the Scandinavian La Liga podcast. You see, you wait around long enough, you get two within four days. That's the kind of value we offer for your zero money here. Uh, I'm Lee Roden and I am with Alexandra Jonsson and it has been a pretty eventful weekend in Spanish football as far as Scandinavians are concerned, I would say. It has. It's like some of them have woken up again. Yeah. Let, let's start with the big game that, that happened on Saturday night, which was probably, for me anyway, for my money, it was the big game of the weekend that was Real Madrid against Real Sociedad. Um, I'm keen to get your thoughts on it, but I wanted to offer up my opinion, which doesn't seem to be one that's shared by a lot of people, but then that happens often, so I don't know what that says about me. Um, I, I thought Larry Al were a little bit disappointing overall. They started really well and obviously they went ahead early, no, thanks in no small part to Sergio Ramos deciding he wanted to provide an assist for the opposition. But despite Odegaard looking pretty good in maybe the first half hour or so, I thought he kind of went into his shell a little bit and some of his decisions uh, in the second half in particular I wasn't really happy with because I know he can do much better, but we can come to that. What, were your, what did you take away from the game? Well, I think to, to get at what you're talking about a little bit, uh, one, one reason why, why a lot of people might not share your opinion, I think, is that a lot of people don't watch Real Sociedad every weekend. They watch mm. Real Sociedad when they play Real Madrid or when they play Barcelona. Um, and I see this happening with a lot of La Liga teams. Suddenly everyone ex- is expert on a certain team uh, as soon as they play Barca or Real Madrid. And, and you can see things on, on Twitter and you're like, but this is not really... One example, for example, is with Real Betis last season when they did that fantastic game at Camp Nou and yeah. suddenly everyone wanted Kike Setien as their coach. Uh, everyone except for the Real Betis fans, which I f- still think says quite a lot, even though they are, are fans that expect a mm. lot and unfairly sometimes. Uh, and I think that's a little bit the case here as well, that we've seen Real Sociedad this entire season and we put an extra focus on them, especially because we have two Scandinavians there. So it's extra interesting for us. And, and we have seen when they've been at their best and we see when they struggle. Uh, and for us, it's not a surprise. Like we were talking about this game pre pre the game, uh, how we almost saw Real Sociedad as favourites going to the Bernabeu with their history there, in what form they are, in what form Real Madrid are. Uh, so I think for people who have not really watched them as closely, seeing that, especially that first half, they were probably very, very impressed with what Real Sociedad are doing. Uh, for us, I think, as you say, I don't think this was Martin Odegaard's best game at all this season. Um, he was better in the first half than in the second half, but there was it wasn't the as good of a Real Sociedad as we have seen in some other games. I think for us it was a bit of a disappointment, while for others it was like, whoa, what's what's this team on about? Yeah, and I agree with everything you said. And I think that the, the things that surprised me most, in particular in the second half, was that we're used to seeing Real Sociedad dominate the midfield in games. And it felt like they were just completely overrun by Real Madrid in the second half. And a big part of that has to go on Odegaard's shoulders because he's a guy who drops deep and picks up the ball in all these different positions and really helps them to move. And I didn't feel like he was really doing that. And then the other thing that was that was different and unusual for him this season is when he did get the ball in the final third. I noticed that his decision-making maybe wasn't quite right. There's one moment where he has a chance to play Alexander Izak in and instead he decides to go inside and try and take the spectacular himself and it doesn't work. And there was another one, I think, with Yanisai maybe where he could have played him and, and didn't. And I don't know, I wonder if the occasion maybe got to him. It's almost, perhaps in a way, it was, it was bad that they started so well because then you start to believe a little bit too much your own hype and actually Real Madrid just 
like seemed to turn up a gear and Ferry Valverde, who we'll talk about in a bit, maybe because I've kind of fallen in love with this player, <laughs> was everywhere and they just had more energy. They were first to the tackle and it felt like they controlled the game from perhaps about like 30, 40 minutes in. From there on, I thought it was all Real Madrid, really. And one thing we've said quite a lot, uh, is we actually said it in the last podcast as well, is how mature we think Adegard is, Isaac is. And a lot of the Real Sociedad players in general, I think this was one of the games where we maybe saw that this is actually a very young team uh, and it's actually I, I checked it to, to just look it up and, and be sure about it this season they are the second youngest squad in La Liga after Salta de Vigo but they are the youngest uh, average uh, when it comes to lineups when it comes to the most normal played lineup by by Emmanuel they have the youngest lineup in the entire La Liga which I think we kind of got to see a little bit more today than we see or today uh, against Real Madrid than we've seen in other games in terms of that when the big occasion comes that there there might still be a little bit of experience lacking in how to tackle that. Yeah, and I'm intrigued now to see how they negotiate this little dip because they've had these points before, like most notably when they lost the derby, where they managed to pick themselves up pretty quickly afterwards and start rolling again. And it'll be interesting to see if they can do that now. And we talked about in the last podcast about how after the international break, your first game can be quite important because that can set a trend for the next few weeks. As far as Real Madrid, though, like I want to give them some credit because we've been pretty harsh on them and, and throughout this season. I think it's fair enough because mostly what they've served up has not been good, but I thought they were really, really good across most areas of the pitch yesterday. Two players in particular, Karim Benzema, it's, it's no secret now that he's, he's playing exceptionally well, but I thought yesterday, yet again, he dominated every aspect of the game that he is involved in when it comes to creating, when it comes to finishing and... I think if he keeps this up, this kind of form up, then he has to be in the discussion. As much as I hate individual awards, he has to be in the discussion for getting on the podium for an individual award because he's been outstanding even when his team's been bad. And now when his team's been playing better, you're seeing just how good he really is. And then secondly, the guy that I mentioned earlier, Fede Valverde, who has really surprised me actually because I, I, mean, I saw a lot of him last season on the occasions that he managed to make some cameos, particularly in the second half of the season. And I thought he was good, but I didn't think he was exceptional. But this season, I mean, it's all about him for me. For me, he's the, the best midfielder that Madrid have had this season by a distance. And if you look at the difference between their sort of win, loss and draw record with and without him, it's really clear on paper that he makes a huge difference to them. So, hey, a guy who's not come out of nowhere, but who certainly has surprised me. And also credit to Zinedine Zidane, who didn't want Danny Ceballos obviously saw something in this kid who's still only 21 and it turns out he got it right so I have to take my hat off to him. Yeah and I think uh, it would be if we take the the other best midfielder that Real Madrid have had this season is probably the one not playing for them that we've been talking about out of guard so it will be quite interesting in the future to actually see those two playing together who I know also are, are quite good friends. I saw Adegard doing a Spanish interview on radio the, the other week. Very impressive for for the mm. level of Spanish he has to sit down and, and dare to do that. Uh, where he actually said that the, the guy he keeps most contact with at Real Madrid is actually Fede Valverde. That's, I never uh, knew so that. That, can, that. That could be a quite interesting pairing both because uh, if you're close as friends as well and then you have that... that technique and, and skill yeah. as they both have as, as midfielders to see them play together and see what they could do together it can be quite interesting in the future. Uh, but anyway, on Real Madrid, I would just like to say that we, we said this is probably their first big test of the season. Um, and in the first half, it felt like they were a bit failing it, uh, where, where Real Sociedad, as it were mainly in the, the first couple of minutes, where Real Sociedad were, were really good. Um, but overall, as you say, we I think we need to give credit to Real Madrid here because they did actually pass this this first big test, and 
I think it's just very important for them when it comes to confidence and mm. when it comes to just how they've been playing this season. And especially when Barcelona keep on underperforming, it's it's a big win to to not only win this game, but to win it against probably the team that everyone is talking about as the best performing team in the league. It's funny how timing can make such a difference in football because I think this is their, as you said, it's their biggest test, but it's also their their best performance in a big game this season. And then obviously later on in the week they have PSG, which is another big game. But it's, it's funny to think back that had, had El Clasico happened at the moment it was supposed to happen, I don't think uh, Madrid would have been particularly well positioned to do well in that game. But then fate conspired that that game didn't happen and they've had a little bit more time perhaps to start to find their form. And now it looks like they're going up the way and Barca are, if not going down the way, they're going kind of just in a straight line. They're not really improving to any great degree. And we'll come back to that later. But it'll be intriguing to see how all this plays out. Now, I want to turn to your neck of the woods and I want to turn to a guy who, as you rightly pointed out before we came on air in the last few days, we've not really spoken about because there's nothing to speak about, Pione Sisto. Um, he's a player that I, I'm familiar with for quite a while because when, when Midtjylland were starting to make waves, um, first in Denmark and then in the Europa League, he was someone that kind of caught my eye and that I tried to get some articles commissioned about, though it never ultimately happened. Um, but I was really impressed with him when he was younger and, and I thought he did well when he first made the step up to La Liga. But then then something sort of happened. He, he disappeared. I don't know. Can you explain to me what, what went wrong for him and why has it ended up that he wasn't playing until now? So actually what's kind of happened with Sisto under basically every coach that, that he's had under Celta is that he started really well um, and been playing some really good games and, and made people quite excited. But he's a very frustrating player, I think, to have when you're a coach. Because uh, then as soon as he gets a little bit too comfortable under the new coach, he kind of disappears a bit and he kind of does stupid things on the pitch more than he does good things. Um, and then then he d- disappears after that. But what's quite interesting is that every coach, as soon the new every new coach at Celta have s- started him basically from the start mm. and had him uh, as a player in the start and then he's faded away into ending up not playing at all. Uh, and I think Oscar Garcia knows that as well coming in, but it's a when you know you have a player that always performs really well at the start under a new coach, then you take advantage of it, obviously. Uh, I think yesterday uh, against Villarreal, Sisto was probably one of the best Celta players on the pitch. He created so much, and also you had Oscar Garcia putting him in the right position, finding there, there was this really good connection between Denis Suarez and Sisto as well during the entire match. And we saw a complete different Pione Sisto than we have during the, the rest of the season. Uh, so basically, the, the Sisto, I think that, that we first saw when he first came to Celta and that everyone was really excited about, that has kind of just disappeared and become, instead of a, a really good football player, what they see him as here is this lunatic who goes on fruit diets and does crazy stuff and posts really weird things on, on social media. Uh, so it was uh, w- having him in the starting eleven yesterday, I think a lot of people reacted to it, but then as the match went on, uh, it was a lot of, of surprising happiness to see Sisters getting back to it and back to the Sisto that the Celta bought, the, the player that they want. Uh, one thing I want to ask you, because you obviously were saw the whole game, I only saw the highlights, but it struck me that the way that Sisto generally has played and, he, and the way that he's been both effective and not effective is he's he tends to start wide, then cuts inside and tries to get a shot away, right? But I noticed in this game, it seemed like he was more often than before the, the last man making the run behind the defence and someone was feeding him from deep, whether it be Dennis or someone else. Do you think that Oscar might have perhaps found a way to make him a more 
consistent player or a more consistently useful player because the problem is also if you have a guy who everyone knows when he gets the ball outside he's going to cut inside and, and try to shoot then after a while that sort of falls apart because it becomes too predictable for opponents so I don't know Oscar seems like a guy who analyzes a lot of details maybe he's had a look at his game and said no well you could be doing this as, as well I don't know what, what did you think about the way he played overall yeah, I definitely think that that is a good point. And what Celta did, they really took advantage of how fast he is because he's a very quick player. And you could see that. And especially, as I said before, him and Denis Suarez really found each other. And Denis Suarez is a typical player to deliver those kind of passes. And then you have Sisto coming. Um, and Villarreal had very difficult stopping that. But overall, you see such big changes with Celta since Oscar Garcia took over. Now it's very short into the to time of, as, of him as a manager, and there's obviously a lot to, to improve. And Villarreal was really good at this game, and you can't get away from Villarreal being the, the better team, I would say, for most of the game, dominating it. But what Oscar Garcia managed to do, which we haven't seen much of from Celta before the season, is he really managed to put that confidence in the team and for him to go out there really looking for the win. There was a point where he was 1-1 and where I think with Celta's track record away, they haven't won an away games in 2019 until this game. Uh, and they have even taken very few draws away. So I think a lot of coaches would probably have that situation where they were 1-1, try to just... Let's get mm. this result. But you can see that that's what was not at all what Oscar was thinking because he saw that they could, uh, they could really hurt Villarreal. And you could see the players, they were going for it. They were going for the win. And more than anything, they were believing in it. And we saw Sisto coming back from, from the death, basically. We saw Iago Aspa scoring goals again because he hasn't really been scoring this season. He got two goals in this game. And then we saw Denis Suarez getting back to his best. And you can see in so many of the players that... He's just figured out already in very short time how to get the best of them in a way that Fran Escriba couldn't. And even though there is a long way to go and you can see there is still a lot of ideas that he wants to implement that he really haven't yet. And, and Villarreal, uh, in that sense, were probably a little bit ahead of Salta. You could still see that this is going somewhere. So it wasn't just that they won their first away victory in 2019. It was more the the hope and, and the way they did it and the commitment and how you saw the players reacting to it, I think. Uh, so that was very positive for Celta to see that. To keep the Danish theme going, I don't think we've spoken particularly in depth about Daniel Vass because he's been unfortunate in that the noteworthy performances have sort of fallen the wrong side of international breaks. But it was nice to see him... Even though it wasn't a positive result for Valencia down in Seville against uh, Betis, it was nice to see him playing in a midfield role again for the second game in a row. Uh, for those who maybe didn't follow, he moved in there against Granada after there was an injury and he ended up scoring and had a man-of-the-match performance. And So he kept his role uh, this weekend away to Betis in part because Valencia have uh, continued injury issues there. But I much prefer him there. We've talked about this before, but I think it gives him a chance to be involved and play way more. He's sort of wasted it right back and... He's a really dynamic, explosive player who covers a lot of ground. And I think that's a nice contrast to Parejo, who's not the guy with the most legs in the world, though he has lots of great things to his game. He doesn't cover as much ground as quickly. Um, though I do feel like Valencia have some some issues, though, in terms of having a more a purer holding midfielder. Um, talking about the, the Betis game, the thing that struck me about this was that I've been talking about, with, uh, about Betis and about Ruby beforehand and afterhand, and... We've also spoken on the pod about how they've been quite lucky to take some results in certain games, but in this one, I don't think it was luck at all. I thought by far the team that wanted to win more 
uh, took the win, even if it took something really ridiculous and spectacular from Sergio Canales at the end of the game. But I, I feel like this could be a turning point for Betis and a turning point for Ruby because it's not just that he survived another difficult moment, but this time it happened because they were playing his football, much more like the kind of football that you would expect to see from a, a Ruby team. And I'm hoping that they can build on this because there was a lot of promise there, I thought. I think that in general, as you say, they have gotten quite a lot of points and, and wins lately that might have been a little bit by luck. But what you've seen uh, more than anything is like how important that has been for the players and like the way they have celebrated those wins and those goals, um, I think says quite a lot. And, and when you can do that, uh, I think the, the coach gets a lot, a lot more power when you take those victories because it makes the player listen more than if you would be in the same situation, but you don't take the points. Uh, it's easy to lose the players and then it's more difficult to actually be able to implant what you really want. And I think maybe Ruby got a, had a quite difficult way coming into to Betis in the sense of how what situation the club was in and, and p- people were being fired that the players really liked uh, and maybe the players not really trusting the board and the fans not doing it either. Uh, so it's just like going in in a situation coming into a team where maybe not everyone is on your side from the start and he's kind of had to go around it in, in a different way and try to, to win them over and uh, and it hasn't been, as you said, the, the Ruby that we expected. It hasn't been the Betis that we expected from Ruby, but maybe that has played in and maybe now getting the, those victories makes the players actually listen to him in another way and we can see a different Betis coming out of this. Uh, we, we'll see what happens after this, but but that could actually be what's what's going on and that could be quite interesting to see see what's happening then. I also feel like I can't remember the exact statistics, but the number of shots they had in the game was absolutely ridiculous and let's say it's in the 20s, I think it was there or thereabouts. And it comes back to that problem at Betis that's been there way before uh, Ruby was there and and apparently still seems to be there with just finishing chances. And then we all thought, or at least I think most of us who watched Borja Iglesias last season thought that he was going to be the solution, but it hasn't worked out for him quite yet. And I, I think that's the last piece in the puzzle. If they can connect with him, get him fully fit, fully match sharp and playing, then that could really make a difference for them. But let's see. Continuing on the theme of strikers and the Danes in La Liga, I want to talk about Martin Brathwaite because for me, if you ever needed an introduction to Javier Aguirre, this is it. Brathwaite goes away in the international break, as we spoke about in the last pod, scores two and two games for Denmark, has scored against Barca already last season, so obviously has the qualities that can, that can cause problems for this Barca team. And Aguirre plays him as a left winger. He's miles away from in his He's nowhere near in contact with the ball in the final third, nine times out of ten in the game. He managed to produce like a few nice touches and, and beat a player once or twice early on, but in general didn't come into contact with possession and was so far away from goal that when Liga did try to break, uh, he couldn't get forward to support on time because it was just one guy on his own up front. This doesn't make any sense to me. I, I mean, it's, it's not a huge surprise, and but also it, it reminds me of something that occurred to me at the weekend, which is that... Going from Pellegrino to, to Aguirre, what's the big change? They're quite similar coaches. They strike me as incredibly similar coaches. So are you just hoping that just by changing the person, you're going to get a bounce? Where's the thinking there? I have a concern that this is not going to work out for Leganes. Yeah, um, I have the same concern as you, and I don't really know what to, how, to, how to answer that question either. Um, it feels like when, when you're in a situation where Leganes are, what you need is a change. Uh, it's We just talked about Celta and the change we've seen there. That was the uh, similar situation, even though different. But there they got a huge change. Um, and 
at Leganes, it's much, much the same, 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 but different kind of thing. Yeah, um, speaking of same, same, but different, Barca, um, another game where they really were not very good at all, or at least are not getting any better. Again, it just feels like they're paying the price for not having made a change when they could have made a change and they're not improving at all and they have a huge game against Dortmund I think they're quite lucky I've not seen Dortmund but looking at their form it looks like they've not had a they've not had very good results recently so they won't go into this game particularly confident but still I mean it's a tough opponent it's not an ideal team to be playing when you're not playing well at this moment in time and I just wonder what happens now if if Barca don't win this game or if they worse still lose it can their board continue to delay the inevitable and if they do have to make a change, what is the change to make? Because we're in the middle of a season and it's just a, it feels like a terrible situation that could have been avoided had they acted at the time when it was responsible to act. And, and here's an interesting thing as well, is that when was the last time that Barcelona changed coach in the middle of the season? Because Real Madrid does it all the time. Yeah. A lot of Spanish teams does it all, that, all the time. But I think the last time Barcelona did it was Luis van Gaal. Yeah, the second time. That, that's how far back back it goes without Barcelona doing which I think in many ways have been a good thing because I think a lot of team uh, lack patience with coaches and as we were talking about Ruby it might actually at Betis turn out that it might have been quite good that they didn't kick him yet even though I think a lot of teams and, and we even have been talking about that maybe it's time to to change coach there but if he can turn things around we'll, we'll see if that happens or not but I think in, in many cases you just have too little patience uh, but now we've come to a point with Barcelona where maybe they've had too much patience, uh, which puts them in a very difficult situation. But, but then the question is, are, are they too afraid to, to do what they haven't done for so, so many years, which is change a coach in the middle of the season? I don't think they're going to do that. I don't think they have the balls to do that, to, to be completely honest. Yeah, actually, I mean, it does feel like there are a lot of parallels, not just in terms of uh, their philosophy, if you like, but in terms of the way they're acting between the, the current board at Barca and the board that was in charge that time as well when, when Van Hal was there. And yeah, I, it's, it's a, I don't really see what the, the solution is for them other than just to, it sounds ridiculous to say right off this season because they could still win big things this season. But in terms of a project, as something to actually be actually be built upon it doesn't look like there's anything there and it almost feels like they're wasting as well a year where they have still uh, some of their older players are still capable of performing at a very good level under the right coach but they also have a lot of this new talent and I, mean, I think about people like Ivan Rakitic for example who's barely kicking a ball this season inexplicably I really don't understand why that has happened when he played so much football last year and did so well most of the time. Um, and then you have Antoine Griezmann, who again, I mean, I can't remember what the specific number was, but let's pluck it out of thin air and say that he only came into contact with the ball like three times from Messi um, at the weekend or whatever before he was taken off. Valverde played four forwards and they still look terrible. It just It's beginning to look like there isn't really a plan um, and there's been a lot of time just wasted until they make they finally do make the change in the summer. But it's a bit depressing if you're a Barca fan, I would imagine as well, that you're seeing this when you know, you've know you got so much talent in your squad but it's just been so badly used. It's a bit of a shame. When, when was the last time it looked like Barcelona had a plan? That's a good point, yeah. It, <laughs> probably, uh, honestly, probably Luis Enrique. That Valverde did well in his first year in particular and to an extent in his second he, he was a transitional manager and I don't think there was necessarily much of a plan with him other than he'll be able to keep the ship steady at this potentially difficult moment but in terms of actually building something as a project I don't know if he was ever the guy that they brought in to do that or was asked to do that for that matter 
I think he was more a coach that was just going to be there in between seasons. But they basically just couldn't find the next coach. And mm. he's just ended up staying. That's the feeling I got get off the entire situation. Yeah, I agree. I think so. Well, there's a couple of matters of note that we should mention before we close up. Um, a small point that I already shared with you, but I did some numbers. And again, John Gadetti did not play at the weekend. You'll be unsurprised what, to learn. Really? But I, I do have some good Gadetti news from, from Instagram. <laughs> Gadetti was spending time today or yesterday with Alexander Isak. Oh, really? Yeah, they are living close, quite close now in Vitoria in San Sebastian. Ah, they yeah. are uh, friends from the national team. They're both from Stockholm. Both Gudetti never played for Aiko, but he's an Aiko fan. He's uh, an Aiko fan? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he's a big Aiko fan. He's not uh, a big Bromma Poikina fan then. But his, his wife is a Hammarby fan, so they have a problem. And he used to play for Bromma Poikina, so they got it all colored. It's just you, Gordon, missing. I guess their kids are going to be you, Gordon, fans. Um, anyway, so he was spending time with uh, with Alexander Isak. They were playing some uh, some paddle or squash or something. I don't know the difference of everything. Yeah, at least Gadetti can keep himself fit because it, so he's played 25 minutes international level since October, and that was in one game when he came on um, against the Faroe Islands earlier and scored with his club. He's played if the numbers are correct 21 minutes in seven matches in that same time, which is kind of terrible, really. I mean, again, just feels like a waste. And again, another instance of what I was mentioning before about Barca, people just running down the clock until you can change the situation because it feels like now nothing can change it. And then I guess the, the, the big change of note this weekend is that, well, what's that? I was going to say Olympus has fallen, you know, those terrible movies with Gerard Butler in them. I've never seen them. They look awful. Um, Osasuna have fallen. They have. It's insane. So that is one year and eight months without losing a single game at home. And this is the interesting thing. The team putting an end to it was Athletic Club de Bilbao. Goal from Inaki Williams, who we are still saying rest Inaki. Um, he, he also broke a record with, uh, I think he's now, I don't know exactly, another record about how many matches he's played. Um, and But the last time Usasuna had gone 30 games in a row without a home defeat was in 60 years ago, 58-59. And who ended that run? Inyaki Williams. He's actually 67 years old. Exactly. No, but uh, Athletic Club de Bilbao. So there you have it. Osasuna should not play Athletic Club if they want to keep their incredible run long home runs. So Athletic is the only team that they're going to El Sadar and win. Yeah, and also, I mean, to, to give a little bit of geographical help to people who maybe don't understand, there's a bit of rivalry there. It's not quite a local rivalry because of the, well, we can go into that if you want, but that's way, way complicated. But it's, it's, it's close to a local rivalry if you, as you can get without it and being it one. It actually might be, if, so if we call it a Basque derby, you can or you cannot. Anyways, I would say it might be one of the ones with most friction. Yeah. Uh, of the teams up there because there is this entire thing with Athletic only signing Basque players and they like taking a lot of players from Usasuna and some people say Usasuna is a part of the Basque country, some say not. It depends on how you look at things. Um, and there have been quite a lot of friction between these two clubs when it comes to not the players and the teams but the boards and how they are doing things when, when taking players from each other or uh, Athletic taking players from Osasuna, more or less. So there is a little bit of friction there. But before we, we go out on the Basque, uh, there was two Basque derbies this weekend. Uh, so it was also Eibar Alaves. Mm. Uh, and what I liked, uh, before the matches, the four coaches met up and had a dinner together. 
the, the four nice. co- coaches from from all the four teams. So it was only poor Emmanuel from Real Sociedad who was in Madrid who did not get to join the Basque coach dinner. The poor man. Yeah, there's some huge Champions League games coming up, and then there's also some big games coming up after that in the league. So when we're back next week, there'll be more than plenty to talk about. But for now, I think that's pretty much anything. Any final business? Uh, speaking of friction. <clears throat> we have tried to hide it throughout the entire podcast, but if you have noticed any friction here, it's because Lee is sitting in a Hammerby shirt and I'm sitting in a Malmo shirt. So anyway, uh, that's, uh, that's why we're not best friends, but we tried, we tried to hide it as good as we could throughout the podcast. But Actually, on that note, without giving too much away, maybe one day we can unite the, uh, the love of Hammerby and Malmo over the theme of Spanish football with one of our special podcasts because I can think of uh, one topic in particular that would combine players from both of those clubs. I kind of like that topic. I think we should do that pretty soon. Yeah. On that wonderful note that will no doubt be edited out then, I think we should wrap things up. In honour of Pionisisto, we should say Hedo in Danish. We need all the Danish followers we can get. Yeah, so... Keep it PG. How do I say goodbye in Danish? I'm I'm really good, bad at the Scandinavian goodbyes. Here's a Danish anecdote for you guys that may or may not make the edit. I don't know if I've shared this one with you. When I first moved to Sweden, so it was back in 2014 I went to Denmark quite soon after to go and cover a game and I went to Copenhagen to to work on in fact it must be it must be 2015 actually to work on Sweden Denmark the playoff and I'd insisted because I could speak okay Swedish at that point I'd learned some I was like nah I can understand Danish it's fine and so in the airport when I think I'd just landed I went to buy like a football magazine or something or perhaps when I was flying home I can't remember and I so I insisted on speaking Swedish and they spoke Danish to me and it was fine in the little shop because you more or less know exactly what someone's going to say even if you can't understand it so they're like that'll be 20 whatever and then you're like okay can I pay my card and yeah yeah and then at the very end uh the guy said something to me in Danish, which I assumed was, was like, do you want a, a receipt or do you want a bag? And I was like, no. And then he just looked at me blankly like an idiot, <laughs> like I was a complete fool, turned to his mate and started laughing. And I realized that he'd said like, oh, had a got, like have a good, have a good day or whatever in Danish. And I'd been like, no, and just looked at him. So have a nice day. No. And then blank pause and laughter. So please there you let go. That, please let that make the edit. We'll, we'll and that's, see. How, that, that's how we end it. Goodbye. No.